Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. I really wish we had three good martinis today, but we do have one. So we're back to our usual format today, actually. Good, bad, and crazy martinis. Jim, we talked a lot in the last couple days about Tuesday's primaries in New York and Florida. And two of our martinis today are following up on the things that we focused on, starting with the good martini, and that is in Florida, as expected, and by the wide margin expected. And I know you're feeling somewhat vindicated by that. Uh, Charlie Crist easily defeating Nikki Freed. It was by nearly 25 points. First of all, kudos to Florida for being able to count votes in a rapid fashion and an accurate fashion. I think most states could probably send some folks down to Florida to learn how to do it. <clears throat> Pennsylvania, uh, some other states uh, along the way. Uh, so it's Charlie Crist winning the primary. That's not the good news. The good news, Jim, is that the Democrats know that barring a miracle, they are going to lose not only that race, but pretty much every statewide race in Florida. And so uh, this NBC News story says, heading into Election Day, Few Democratic insiders and political observers gave Christ or Freed much of a chance in November, citing every recent public poll showing DeSantis leading Christ. Fatalistic is probably the best word to describe Democrats' mood, said Sean Philippi, a Florida Democratic data scientist who voted for Christ. Asked whether he had any hopes of Democrats winning, meaning in November, Philippi responded, For statewide elections? God, no. The voter registration information is very telling and very predictive. You can't write the story of how Charlie Crist beats Ron DeSantis unless there's a major, major scandal none of us knows about right now or where Democrats register hundreds of thousands of new voters. So, Jim, with that kind of optimism, it makes you feel pretty good about November, but uh, Republicans shouldn't be taking their feet off the pedal at all. But knowing where Florida stands right now, pretty comforting. Greg, if there's any word that I want to see in a headline about the Democratic Party after their primaries fatalistic is really high up there that's that's a really clear indicator that nobody's getting their hopes up high and you know you've there were a decent number of uh i'm going to characterize as more progressive florida democrats who were nikki freed uh supporters who won by the way extraordinarily doubted yesterday's morning jolt argued that i was pushing pro charlie christ propaganda because if there's anything i stand for it's support of charlie christ and yeah, I just simply looked at the polling and the most recent poll before Election Day had Christ up by 30. Now, we all remember cases in which the polls have been very wrong. And sometimes you do see really big misses. You know, Susan Collins in Maine last year. Uh, Quinnipiac kept saying that Lindsey Graham was in trouble in South Carolina and he ended up winning by 10 points. So, yes, yeah, sometimes you can find goals that are really, really far off. But when they, you know, they generally don't miss by like 30. Right. And so yesterday... Chris won by 25 points. Okay, so she did a little bit better, but it really didn't matter that much in the end. It looked like a Chris landslide, and it turned out to be a Chris landslide. And, you know, these supporters of uh, Nikki Freed should kind of learn, if someone tells you something you don't want to hear, they are not necessarily lying to you. They are not necessarily been brainwashed by Charlie Crist. They're not part of a grand conspiracy. Sometimes the news is bad. Learn to live with it, like the rest of us. Not that that got under my skin. Um, but the other thing that kind of jumps out here is that there were some, you know, some of these Dickie Freed supporters who argue that Chris isn't even really trying to win. He's a former Republican. They didn't trust her. I don't, I don't think this is an elaborate long con that Charlie Crist is running. 
But there's good reason to doubt whether he's the right guy. And, you know, obviously he's lost statewide twice before. This morning, in his first press conference as the Democratic nominee, he was asked, he said he does not want any DeSantis supporters to switch over to him. Quote, those who support the governor should stay with him. I don't want your vote. If you have that hate in your heart, keep it there. Hmm. Greg, have you ever seen a candidate whose first thing after the primary is to announce who he doesn't want to vote for him? <laughs> um, I mean, just talk about like virtues. And, and I'm, I'm looking at this on Twitter and there are a lot of Democrats who are like, wait, what? What? We, you know, and you know, a lot of folks suspecting that he does that he knows he's not going to win. You know, obviously the head to head polling has favored DeSantis for quite a while now. And it's, you know, outside the margin of error. It doesn't look all that good. The idea that maybe this campaign is going to be about virtue signaling. This campaign is going to be about staying pure, not sullying yourself with the effort of trying to win as many votes as you can. This is Chris arguing, if you're not voting for me, you have hate in your heart. Wow. Go for it, Charlie. Go. Good luck. That's that's exactly the right message, you know. We just talked about yesterday. Wasn't Nikki Freed's quote yesterday? You know, if I lose, the people lose. And if Charlie Chris says, if you don't vote for me, you have hatred in your heart. I mean, talk about your binary choices. But uh, wow. I also, you know, Jim, you and I hate getting the political emails. They must raise some money because they keep coming. But man, they're annoying. I even hate them from the Republicans. I unsubscribe to as many of them as I can. But I, I once slipped into my inbox this morning because uh, in the Democratic primary in Florida, Val Demings is going to be the nominee against Marco Rubio. And the reaction to her primary win, where she was the only high-profile candidate in the race, is, I can't believe it. We won the primary. Now it's on to the general. Like, <laughs> I was only ahead by 80 points the entire time. They probably didn't even bother polling the race at all. I think she got over 90% of the vote. So this whole, you did it. Your contribution made the difference, or else she only would have won by 85. It's just insane. Political fundraising emails, clearly they go with the messages that generate a result regardless of whether they're accurate and regard so everything is always like you know our democracy is hanging by a thread <laughs> if we don't meet our quarterly deadline you know you're, you're asking for money you know what be a better candidate that'll get you more money right yeah then the second thing is that it's always kind of intriguing because there have been a couple of times you'll see political occasionally generally not your experienced political reporters but every once in a while you'll see you know that the, they must have some research indicating that if you communicate bad news people will give more Right. You know, so you'll get the subject line, bad news, or I didn't want to have to tell you this, but, you know, or something like that. And people, there are some reporters who, first of all, I, I never signed up for any of these fundraising emails. I think there are some campaigns that automatically take their press list and put it on the fundraising list. And I really want to use bad words. I'll just keep it to screw you as the response to that. I, if I'm covering your campaign, I'm not a donor. I'm not going to give you money. I don't like giving money to people who I, I owe money to. Never mind political campaigns. But so they'll do this. And occasionally someone will treat that fundraising message as if it's an actual confession of genuine fundraising problems. And it very, very rarely turns out to be the case. So they're this alternate universe, crazy Eddie style messaging that this never means anything. Uh, and I just if I could if I could make all the fundraising emails go away uh, forever, I would do so. Yeah. Candidates 
I'm never going to donate to you, ever. The only candidate I've ever donated to is my college roommate who was running for his township board back in Michigan. And so uh, the, the one I, I, I can't bring myself to unsubscribe from, though, is from Biden, because for some reason it keeps calling me Doris. And it just uh, it thinks I'm an old woman named Doris. And uh, and I, I just imagine Joe Biden mistakenly calling me Doris all the time. It just seems very accurate. So I, I, that, I, I just get a kick fits. out of that. Yeah. Yeah. The other message I've seen a lot of lately is you deserve an explanation. <laughs> and it's very much like like we've walked in on the candidate with another woman or something like that. <laughs> Some sort of like, hey, I don't know if I want to hear all this kind of stuff. There's, there's a, clearly these very personal uh, subject lines must get more people to open them. And uh, I'm always being invited to give money. No, once again, <laughs> screw you. You know <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, the thing they need to level with us about is that they fell $10,000 short of their monthly or quarterly goal, which, of course, is meaningless. All right, on to our bad martini now, Jim. And this is very bad. I know your colleague Charlie Cook is probably spitting more nails about this topic than just about anyone in conservative media right now. But the details are finally coming together now. The Biden administration is going to announce today that it's going to cancel up to $10,000 in student debt for borrowers. And this is the NBC story. Cancel up to $10,000 in student debt for borrowers who earn $125,000 a year or less and up to $20,000 for recipients of Pell Grants. Couples who earn $250,000 a year or less who file taxes jointly will also qualify for the cancellation of up to $10,000 for each partner. The administration is also extending the payment pause on federal student loans for a final time through December 31st. Jim, this has people upset for a number of reasons. First of all, the far left doesn't think this is enough. They just want everything forgiven. But, of course, the, the biggest problem here is that taxpayers are on the hook for student loans because that was a program that got shoved into Obamacare. We didn't pay enough attention to that at the time. And so the government can uh, just decide to do these things. But I think better than just about anybody explaining this is the people it affects. Elizabeth Warren was pushing the idea of student debt forgiveness during her 2020 presidential campaign. And this is how a dad in Iowa brought it up to her. There's unfortunately a bunch of background noise, so hopefully you can uh, uh, hear it well. But he says that he saved up, worked double shifts so his daughter wouldn't have to take out student loans, and she wants to just forgive the people uh, who weren't as responsible. So here's how that went uh, just a few years ago. I just want to ask one question. My daughter's getting out of school. I've saved all my money. She doesn't have any student loans. Am I going to get my money back? So you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money, and those of us that did the right thing get screwed. No, it's not anything that's screwed. Of course we did. My buddy had fun, bought a car, went on vacations. I saved my money. He made more than I did. But I worked a double shift, worked extra. My daughter's work, she was 10. So you're laughing. Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. We did the right thing, and we get screwed. I appreciate that. That's all right. Yeah, we did the right thing and we get screwed. And at that point, Elizabeth Warren says, I appreciate your time and moves on to the next person. So, uh, Jim, hard to sum it up better than that. We've had a lot of bad martinis and, you know, maybe this isn't as bad as watching people fall off of landing gears in Afghanistan or something like that. But this is, this is a really darn bad one. And maybe I, I, you'd think having had the better part of a year of rumors that Biden was going to do this. Would, would lessen the blow, but as it becomes reality, in fact, probably as we're, as we're recording right now, um, it doesn't. It, it really stings because it is such full-spectrum bad decision. I urge listeners to read my colleague Charlie Cook before his head explodes 
because he's livid about this and he's got every good reason. I think he's channeling a lot of anger out there. This is bad economics. This is probably going to have at least a mild deleterious effect on inflation because the government is basically saying, hey, you know, now you got more money to spend because we're going to cover those debts that, oh, by the way, no one has been paying unless they chose to pay since March 13th, 2020. So we're now past two years. We're coming up on about two and a half years. No one has had to make these payments. Now, if you're smart and you're responsible, you would have paid down uh, the principal on this. You would have continued making the payments. But maybe you had disruption because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe you're out of work or you couldn't go into work or something. So maybe you couldn't. Okay, fine. Look, I think we can all agree over the course of 2021, the pandemic became from this, you know, still major factor in our lives to less and less of a factor in our lives. Certainly, it's been a much smaller factor since the uh, Omicron wave in January, February around then. So you've had a lot of time. And yet, basically, the government, you know, all this time people could have. And perhaps because people thought Biden was going to do this, they have not done so. This is bad economics. The moral hazard is just off the charts here. If you didn't like bailouts of big banks and big corporations, I don't understand why you would enjoy a government bailout of people who've chosen to not pay back their debts that they signed a contract agreeing to do. As you know, it was laid out by uh, that questioner and by Charlie and by lots of folks. This means if you paid back your student loans, you are a sucker. You are gullible. You are a chump. And Joe Biden has decided he's going to make this, uh, that he's surrounded by people who think this is a good idea and they're going to do it. But I really think this is not, the irony is that you see all kinds of dumb decisions or bad decisions made by this administration. You say, well, they're popular and they want to win votes and stuff. At least on a national level, I don't think this is going to be good news. Now, maybe this will help you in a particular district or uh, particular areas. Look, the study by the Federal Bank, Reserve Bank of New York looked at this and basically said, where do people with a lot of student loans live? Generally in wealthy, heavily white neighborhoods. <laughs> Generally, this is people um, who made the choice to take out a lot of student loans, went into professions in which the salaries that they make are not perhaps not as high as they expected. Perhaps they always had unrealistic expectations. They're still, compared to the blue-collar workers, they're doing better off. Joe Biden has basically decided, I'm rewriting the social contract. If you agree to pay back money, I will step in and pay it back for you. You are part of a demographic class that I want to help. This is real class warfare. This is really undermining responsibility, undermining keeping your word, undermining the need for uh, financial good sense and reading the fine print and not taking on debts that you can't pay back. Uh, I think it's going to run terribly amongst the rotor electorate. And I kind of wonder if some of this is driven by the fact that Democrats expect to lose the House and, you know, they may lose the Senate. It's 50-50. And their attitude is, well, we might as well do everything we want to do while we can because we're not going to have the uh, ability to do so. The, the midterms are already going to be bad, so we might as well go for broke and do everything we want to do. The anger from out there if, if people is palpable. And they really don't like the idea of a federal government making them feel like a chump and a fool for doing the responsible choice. We're going to be dealing with the consequences of this for a long time. And I think this is an anger that will not dissipate for a good long time. Jim, I know you spend uh, time on Twitter. We probably both spend too much time on Twitter. Have you noticed these people on the left saying, you know, you guys who never actually took out student loans or paid them back, it's not like it's really being transferred to you. You keep saying that, but the government just forgives it. Nobody actually has to pay anything. Jim, how do these people get a degree? Are public schools that bad that math and economics are just not taught anymore? <laughs> how does this work? 
Apparently so. We're like one step away from the argument. Jim, it's not taxpayer money. It's the government's money. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And the other story that we talked about a lot, I think it was uh, back on Monday, was uh, New York 12, the 12th Congressional District, redrawn. Two longtime Democratic members, both committee chairs, having to face each other in the same district. Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney seemed to be a tight race. There was also an upstart who some thought might have a chance to beat both of them. Didn't happen. Jerry Nadler wins big. He wins by like 30 points, not even close. And so we were wondering uh, when we talked about just how ugly uh, this campaign had gotten between Nadler and Maloney, what things would be like when the race was over. And as we speculated with basically common sense on uh, Monday was that whoever won would pretend that everything was fine and they would be magnanimous. And the other one, eh, not so much. And that's exactly what happened. Here's Jerry Nadler last night after winning. Carolyn Maloney and I have spent much of our adult lives working together to better both New York and our nation. I speak for everyone in this room tonight when I thank her for her decades of service to our city. And then Carolyn Maloney says, quote, I'm really sad that we no longer have a woman representing Manhattan in Congress. In Congress, it is that when women are at the table, great decisions are made. She then went on to talk about other women in uh, New York politics who had made a difference in Congress, like Shirley Chisholm and Geraldine Ferraro. Maloney said they, quote, fought sexist systems and misogyny that continues today, as we know from my own campaign. And as the New York Post says, an obvious dig at Nadler. So, Jim, politics gets ugly, especially when you got to run against each other, even if you've been allies for a long time. Carolyn Maloney's been in Congress for 30 years. She's got a lot of power on Capitol Hill. Not really sure how much of a victim she is of misogyny and a sexist system when you've put together that kind of power. Greg, I don't know how much spare money the NRCC or National Republican Committee has But uh, my sense is with the reporting, it's not very much. But you kind of wonder if you took that quote in which she is denouncing New York Democrats for their sexism and the sexist systems and misogyny. Let's say you ran that as a 30 second ad on, say, Lifetime Network or any of the shows that had extremely high female demographics. And you just tried to get that message into the bloodstream. How how would that shake out? How would, would you see the numbers move a little bit? Would that depress female turnout uh, in certain areas or Democratic? Uh, it would just start to spur more infighting in Democratic circles. Uh, you know, maybe they, don't have, maybe they don't have the money to do it. Just seems like a interesting thing there. I, I do, by the way, I think there is a useful lesson in this, which is that, uh, and I wrote about this earlier in the week, you know, yes, this got this primary got really nasty really fast. And I think, you know, from two longtime members of Congress who insisted they saw the other as a friend and that the moment they were put up against each other, they just went at it, hammer and tongue, and wanted to rip into each other's reputations. And she said that not only did she Nadler was uh, not really a friend to woman, that he had been taking credit for other people's work and that he was lazy and that he was senile. And for his part, Nadler said that Maloney was gullible and uh, cowardly on some of her votes and all that kind of stuff. This got really nasty. And so I think what's significant here, can you say that this was actual sexism that held back Maloney? Well, if it was sexism, it's very strange that the sexism didn't manifest in the previous 14 times she won elections. <laughs> She's fought primaries before and won against men before. So why did the sexism suddenly appear now in midsummer 2022 or late summer 2022 that hadn't existed all the time before? 
I think it's most likely she's using sexism as an excuse for the fact that she either ran a worse campaign or more likely the way the district lines were drawn. There was a little bit more of Nadler's old district than there was of hers. And she came out on the short end of the stick of that. Does sexism exist? I'm pretty darn sure it does. I'm not a woman, but you know, women I know and trust can give all kinds of stories. Guys who act like jerks or people who talk down to them or times they've been passed over for promotions they thought they deserved. But there are also cases when women fail on their own merits and then choose to blame sexism rather than taking a hard look in the mirror and thinking about what they could have done better. That appears to be what's at work here for Maloney. And it'd be kind of better. The world would be better if women would not use this as an excuse or a crutch when they don't perform as well as they hoped. But I'm not going to fix all the problems of the world for now. So for now, I just want to, you know, throw as much gasoline on the fire of Democratic infighting and let Democrats argue that, no, they're not sexist. And you can't find sexism in the system that featured Andrew Cuomo, Eric Schneiderman and Elliot Spitzer and uh, Wiener. Anthony Weiner. There, there's no there's not sexism amongst New York Democrats. Come on. Not at all. I don't know where she gets that from at all. Oh, Jim, amazing times, amazing times. But yeah, if the Democrats want to go after each other, more power to them. So we'll see what happens from here. Jim, have a great Wednesday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Remember Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms. Also, the short story, Saving the Devil, available at Amazon. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday and join us again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. Class is an important question when it comes to college education, period, because a lot of people, they would see don't go to college and they would think, but that is your ticket into the middle class. That's your, that is your ticket to upward mobility. That is how in America you become successful. You work really hard and you get into college and then you work hard in college and get a job. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.